The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales. Episode 35, Rock and Roll, Part 2. to shrug off his feeling of malaise and continue. Although he was on a roll and clearly had the floor, he distinctly felt there was something going on over which he had no control. The giant roared that he had no time for lying, unmannerly Irishmen who sought to bring ruin to his household. But when he came out to confront the now rather large green man, he quailed, taking off his cap and bowing his head. That cap you have there, said the green fellow. Stop twisting it round like a lie on your lips and tell me what it does. N nothing, your honor. The great green man raised his staff menacingly. All right, all right, the giant wailed. It does whatever you set the mind under it to do. If you need to be invisible, it lets you see everyone, but they can't see you. But that takes a lot of energy, and you're liable to be exposed when you'd sooner not be. If you'd rather fit into a crowd and go unnoticed, that spell lasts longer. You can keep that up for quite a while. If you'd rather just see your opponent's cards so you can cheat him, the cowering giant trailed off. Understood, the green fellow said. Hand it over. My master will appreciate it. Why didn't you set your mind to something useful under it when you came out of the house? I thought you were just a little nuisance of a fellow and your master even less than you. That wasn't a very useful thought at all, was it? No, the giant shook his shaggy head ruefully. Do you have a cellar? the green man asked. Yes, your honor, a good stout one. Nothing gets in or out of it without my key. Give me the key and let's go to the cellar. The giant sighed and obeyed, allowing himself to be locked away for the night in his own cold storage, thinking that more prudent than getting in the way of the stranger's terrible staff. The green man shrank down to his usual small size and his quarterstaff with him. Then the King of Ireland's son and all his strangely talented company availed themselves of the giant's hospitality. They ate a good meal, stoked a roaring fire, told tall tales a third of the night, tales to shorten the road and stir the heart another third, and slept the dark side of the rest of the night until dawn. The company let the giant out of the cellar in the morning and took gracious leave of the household who secretly wished the giant had been left in his captivity, although that would have made replenishing from the winter stores an unpleasant challenge, and they went on their way. They traveled all day. As dusk fell, the King of Ireland's son swore he saw no dwelling where they could seek shelter. The short man looked around and indicated a great keep on a hill. The brother of the last giant lives there, 
I'll go see what may be done. As before, he produced his staff, which grew in size as he did, until he perched on the castle's battlements, laying about him with his staff with no more fear than a man shows swishing away flies. The giant came thundering out in a robe and his favorite slippers. You! I heard there was a green sprout making a nuisance of himself at my brother's homestead. Be gone, you mendacious Irish rogue, or I won't even bother to grind your bones. I'll just spread you like jelly on my bread. The formerly wee green man grew until he was as big as a small forested mountain. I'm no liar, and neither is my master. Is he as big as you? the giant asked, looking up timidly and doing a few quick calculations, measuring his odds against the new deficiencies in his reach and stature. He's a bigger fellow than both of us, to be sure. And you, a great lout with no sense of occasion, you come out to greet us in your raggedy slippers, not even decently shod like some slatternly fishwife after gossip. Hand those old slippers over, they're disgrace. You surely wouldn't want to be caught dead in them, though that's the fate you're heading for. Anything but these old things, your lordship, for I'm loath to part with them. Are they seven-league slippers? Nay, your honor, they're better. Put them on, and the earth will shake beneath your feet if you so desire to intimidate your enemies. Or will them to carry you as soft and swift as feathers on the wind. Seven leagues? Pah! You have but to put them on, and you won't have time to blink before you've reached your destination. Realizing he'd said entirely too much, the giant gave the slippers into the green fellow's silent, outstretched hand. Do you have a dungeon in this place? Aye, and a fine one, very sturdy and impossible to escape from. Again, the giant fell into a remorseful silence as the green man demanded the keys and locked the giant in his own underground cells. Then the green man brought the company into the castle and they ate, drank, and danced before the fire, telling shameful boasts and lies to each other in great amusement for a third of the night, whispering legends of the fae and uncanny for the next third, and sleeping lightly and with one eye open in case any of what they said was true for the final few hours until dawn. They prepared a hearty breakfast for all the household, including their prisoner, cleaned up after themselves like true gentlemen, and went on their way. They traveled all day, and even the King of Ireland's son did not fail to see the huge castle where they would seek hospitality that night. That's the eldest brother of the giants. He's the one to reckon with, said the short man, swirling his twilight-colored cloak about him with a determined air. He went as scout and harbinger as before, and when he had finished laying about him with the quarterstaff, the giant came out, swishing a rusty sword. I'll have you for dinner, he growled. Not if I have that blade off you first, replied the green man. Hand it over or you'll find me a big problem to deal with and my master bigger still. He grew to a towering height to prove his point. The giant gulped and stammered. 
this rusty old thing? Nay, your honor. Allow me to go into my keep and retrieve my three-edged sword for you. It always cuts clean and leaves no trace of its passing. No, thank you. I'll be having the rusty one. What was it meant to do that you keep it in such poor condition? Does it not hold an edge? It holds more than that, your lordship. It holds death swiped one way, life the other, which is why it cannot be easily cleaned. It undoes its own fell deeds in the right hands and can even heal one slain by another blade if used quickly enough. It strikes true the once and true again, no matter what meets the blade, the giant admitted, wondering why the green stranger compelled him to speak so freely. The stranger held out his hand and took the sword, depositing the hapless giant in his own brig for the evening. As before, the heroes made merry with a fine meal and a fire, cooking enough for the household as well, then telling tales of gods for a third of the night, of ghosts and demons the next third, and sleeping the sleep of those hopeful of heaven for the final hours until morning. They set the eldest giant free and traveled all the next day until they came to the court of the queen of the eastern realm. She welcomed them but haughtily, even though the king of Ireland's son swore his love in earnest. You'll have me if you can take the blood curse from me, she said. Otherwise, your head will join these other fellows atop the spikes of my palisades. The king of Ireland's son saw the grisly company she would have him join. Still worth the trouble, lad, croaked his old hawk. The queen handed the king's son an ornate pair of scissors. Keep these safe. I shall ask for them in the morning. Fail to produce them and I shall have your head. She put a pin of sleep into his pillow and took the scissors as he slumbered. She gave them to the court apothecary, who was also the chief assassin and spy master and who was known as the King of Poison. The wee green man put on the cap and the slippers and crept into the spy master's chambers as he slept and stole the scissors back. In the morning, the queen asked for her scissors and was furious when the king's son produced them. Take this comb, she commanded, and give it back to me tomorrow morning or your life is forfeit. The same thing happened, and again the green-clad companion retrieved the comb and saved his young master's life. Keep the comb again, and tomorrow bring me the head of the one whose hair it went through. This time, when she put the king's son to sleep, she commanded her spy master to hide the comb more thoroughly. He put the comb into a box, sealed with thirty magic locks into a cleft of rock. The wee green man wore the cap and slippers and took the rusty sword. He cut through the stone and the locks, took the comb and beheaded the spy master, then swiped in reverse so that he was whole again. Tell what you know in the morning, warned the stranger, or feel the blade but once more. As the queen received the comb and was subjected to the frightened ramblings of her gibbering chief assassin and spy, she was furious. She commanded the king's son to appoint one of his company 
to run a race with her old nurse to retrieve a bottle of the waters of all healing from a well at the far edge of her domain. The queen's old nurse was a powerful witch, and although the runner of the company put both his feet down and started well in front, she convinced him there was no rush and he should take his ease. Then she put him into an enchanted sleep, spilled his vial of well water, and started for home with her own. When the king's son didn't see his runner returning, he was alarmed and asked the rifleman to sight him and the listener to keep an ear out. Together they reported he was asleep, snoring loudly enough to shake the rim of the world. Fire a waking shot, the king's son requested. The runner woke up all at once, but seeing his water was spilled, guessed the trick and had to run back to the well first. The king's son asked the whistler to whistle up a stout breeze to blow the old nurse back a bit, to let their man catch up fairly, given her obvious lack of sportsmanship. The whistler blew up a good gale, and the old nurse had to fight her way through. Meanwhile, the runner fetched more water and soon caught up and overtook her, winning the race. The queen told the king's son that he would have to walk three miles barefoot if he wanted her on a road of steel nails, their points up. The king's son asked the man who laid a roadbed by breaking rocks with his thigh whether he could smooth the way a bit. Surely, young master, the man pledged, and soon the king's son was walking down a road as smooth as the one to hell. By this time, though, he wasn't sure his oath was worth it. When he returned, the queen was ready to be presented as his bride, and they were married in the castle, surrounded by all the marvelous company. When it was time for the king's son to lift the veil and kiss his bride, the veil turned into a mass of coiling, poisonous snakes. I'll take my pay now, the short green man shouted as he leapt forward, rusty sword in hand. He snicked off all the snakes' heads in one blow, then another, just to trim the ends tidy. My lord, he said, I was the man whose debts you paid, and your company has been comprised of my companions from heaven. Odd angels all, perhaps, but loyal for all that. We will take our leave now. Your oath is fulfilled. But watch to what and to whom you pledge your heart and soul in the future. The marvelous company disappeared. Where does that leave us? The queen fumed. You had the upper hand and help and won all my games. And now I'm left with a husband I don't want. We could settle this with another game the king's son offered, coming late but timely to his folly. We could decide things as Meteor and the High King decided the fate of Ethan over a game of chess. I'd sooner play your raggedy old bird, the queen sniffed. That can be arranged, the king's son replied, exchanging a wink with his faithful old hawk. Surprised laughter greeted the end of Jack's tale. The Decameron shuffled, eight of diamonds. You didn't even kill any giants in that one. 
A hard act to follow, but I'll try, Lucas said. Checkmate. That queen was a royal cow anyway. The king's son can do better, Isabel said. Sacrificing the queen can be a very risky move, Baba Yaga said, signing off. Later that night, Jack took out the physical copy of the small box he'd found in the veil and put it inside his uncle's plain wooden box. It clicked open with the sound of jingling harness and a trotting horse pulling a wooden wagon, the sound he most associated with holidays with his uncle when he was very small. There was also a folded piece of paper, a story about a cabin the Fay built for a mortal woman. She had had a hard life, and so the good people decided that she might spend eternity on the threshold of Tirnanog as a kindness, given that her kind only took from her all her life, giving little back. Every sacred night of solstice or equinox, a dying soul would find that enchanted cabin and be welcomed by its mistress, the once poor woman who had toiled for others all her life in the hope of a place of her own. The Celtic little match girl set round a hearth fire that never went cold. The handwriting was his mother's. The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, is an original work by Shauna Kozar, all rights reserved. Shauna gratefully acknowledges that she lives and works in a beautiful, storied place, the ancestral lands of the Snamuk First Nation, and that she crafts her tales thanks to the support of the Canada Council.